is Jesus in his own words. It's a series that we're continuing today where we're taking a look, not so much at, at, uh, at, at Jesus in our own words, although all of us have a reason or all of us have an idea about who God is, and now we're turning to God, we're turning to Jesus and saying, why don't you tell us who you are or what you're like? Just to kind of get us all on the same page, one of the things that I've learned along the way is that, um, is that very few people struggle or wonder with this question of does God exist? Right? Like nobody wonders, or very few people, I should say, wonders, uh, is God real? Uh, Gallup polls, kind of anecdotal evidence of talking to people. We tend not to ask that question, is God real? The question that everybody wants answered is, what's God like? And so that's what this series is about, answering that question, what's God like? And so you, you have an idea about what God is like, and maybe that, was, maybe that was entirely your own. Maybe you're kind of borrowing it from a book or a story that you read or a Saturday morning cartoon, whatever it is. We have these ideas about what God is like, and some of them might be a little truer than others, and that's what the series is about. You have an idea about what God is like. Maybe, maybe you think that God or your idea about God is that he's like the Santa Claus in the sky somewhere. And, you're, and what you do is you deliver him your Christmas present list all year long via prayer and just wait for him to shower you with presents, or as you might call them in Christianese, blessings, right? That's your idea about who God is, what God is like. Maybe your idea of who God is or what God is like is this uh, like a, a authoritarian figure, and that's why you don't like him so much, because, because the, God is there to kind of drive up right behind you, probably tailgating or something close to it, and, and, and he's there ready to like nab you, rather to catch you doing something wrong. Maybe it's speeding or driving recklessly, your vehicle of life, the metaphor here, and, and he's just waiting, waiting to get you to turn on like the you know, the God blue lights and to pull you over and to say, you can't be doing that. Maybe that's your idea about what God is like. Maybe, like I said before, your idea about God is developed and your theology is developed entirely from Saturday morning cartoons that you watch growing up and you're like stuck in this idea that God is this bearded fella, also like Zeus, who's sitting on a cloud somewhere far away and he's ready to throw lightning bolts at you. That's what God is like. Some of you probably came here today with this idea that God is like this far off, distant, aloof, kind of uncaring type of person. That he, that he maybe made the world, but he doesn't so much care about what's happening to the people inside of this world. And that's your idea about what God is like. So here's the favor. Like as you're here, and if I could ask you to sort of suspend your own idea about what God is like as we turn to God and say, why don't you tell us what you are like? And we're doing that throughout this series, Jesus in his own words, by hearing from Jesus, from God, his statements about what God is like. Now, Jesus, as we heard last week, spring break was a little while ago, so for some of you, so catch us all up on a page. God, throughout the Old Testament, sprinkled throughout was these passages that, that God referred to himself as, as the I am. He's, he's the great I am. It ends the Bible in Revelation with and throughout the Old Testament. Moses asking the burning bush, who should I say sent me? Tell them the I am sent you. And then Jesus, fast forward to the New Testament, he gets on scene and he's doing his miracles thing and he's doing his teaching thing and people start gathering around him asking like, like who are you? And Jesus has these statements that, that he says, and it's a little clunky in the original language, it's weird, that's how we know something else is going on. And he says, I, I am the light of the world we heard last week. And it's this, this cue for his listeners to say, did, did he just say that? 
Did Jesus, yes, Jesus just claimed to be the I am of the Old Testament. He just said that. Now, last week we did I am the light of the world. And as Jesus is saying this, there's temple, uh, the the festival of uh, tabernacles going on in the background. You got like lights you can see from anywhere in Jerusalem and this eternal flame and all. Hugely significant stuff. If this doesn't ring a bell, then you can go ahead and tune in, you know, watch the last week's message to like as a refresh. But, you know, setting that aside, this week we see him, Jesus, turn to the crowd and say, if you want to know what God is like, And we got a double shot of I am statements in the same story. God says, I am, and he goes, I am the gate, and I am the good shepherd, which is a little strange because because most of these things, you kind of like, yeah, if God is going to relate to us or try to tell us what he is like, you know, most of these images sort of make sense. Even when we don't know about the Feast of Tabernacles and the significance of what was happening in the backdrop, when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, you look at it and go like, that kind of makes sense. Like, I get it. I would understand if, Jesus, if God says, I'm like the light of the world. It would make sense if God says, I am like a sunset over, you know, at the beach, over the water on a perfect day. I, I get it. I am like a campfire with, with friends and family all gathered around. That makes sense to me. I am like a rainbow or a unicorn. All of this makes perfect sense to me. But when Jesus turns to everybody and says, no, no, I am the gate that I don't so much understand. And when he turns into that culture, when he says, I am the good shepherd, we're going to see that doesn't make much sense either. That's just ludicrous and absurd. And so if you're around encounter for long enough, you know that we kind of have this saying that whenever anything gets weird in the Bible, we're going to have the humility to assume that something was going on then or something was going on in the words of the speaker, Jesus in this case, that made sense that we just don't quite understand it at a first reading. And so we like to dig a little bit deeper on those. So this morning, we're going to dig deeper on this weird statement that Jesus makes to say, how is... I am the gate, or the good shepherd, supposed to help us understand what God is like. So let's go to the Bible. John chapter 10. There's Bibles uh, under, the, uh, under the chairs in front of you. The words are also going to be on the screen. John chapter 10, page number on the program. And we're going to start off in John 10 by looking at, the, uh, by looking at verse 7. In, in John 10, chapter, chapter 10, verse 7 says this. Therefore, Jesus said again, he's talking like the Pharisees, he's talking to the religious authorities of the day. Jesus said, very truly I tell you, and this is the line that we're looking at, I am the gate for the sheep. We're the sheep in this example. You don't love it, but let's go with it. Verse eight, all who, all who have come before me, listen, remember, he's talking to the religious authorities, all who have come before me are Thieves and robbers, I understand why they put him to death. I get that. But the sheep have not listened to them. Okay, verse 9, again he says, I am the gate, and whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. Now we pause right there because, because I want to drop in on, on, on what, how we understand God or maybe misunderstand God because we're taking our cues from all the wrong places. So remember, this is about suspending our belief in who we think God is and understand who does God say that he is. One of the things that we understand about God is that like there is heaven far away and it's like on a cloud somewhere and there's like a gate, 
right? Right out of the Bible, and it's pearly, and there's St. Peter. We never call him St. Peter, except when we're talking about the gate. And St. Peter is like right there, and he's got a list, and when we die and when we go there, he's like, like heaven's bouncer. He's gonna like look at your list, and cr- you're not on the list, or you are on the list. Come on in. You know, and if it's cold and if it's rainy outside of heaven on that day and you wait in line to get into the, into the club or whatever, like you get up and you get, you're not on the list. Send you back out in the cold and rain. Um, or come on in. There's a party waiting for you and we're going to like bump all night. It's going to be great. One of the things, this is, uh, my kids have this, um, I've got you know, little kids because that's why preachers have kids as an illustration. Um, but we picked... <laughs> We picked up a, uh, at a garage sale this, this DVD of action Bible songs. By the way, a DVD is the thing you used to watch movies on before streaming. And it was 50 cents, and I'm pretty sure we overpaid. And we, we put it in, and one of the songs... Uh, one of the songs on the disc was, uh, was about how it was it kind of picked up a riff on this gate image, and the kids were like singing and they're dancing, and they were cute. By the way, the DVD was like this 90s version of this bootleg 70s version. So, I mean, you just lower your expectation. It's the nonprofit version of a thing that wasn't even very good in the first place. <laughs> but there's the kids singing these songs, very low budget, and they're singing about this door, right? Like, like this gate. And the kids are singing, and they're like, one door, there's only one, yet it's high. And then they start singing. I'm like, I'm listening to this thing as my kids are like getting into it because they've watched it a thousand times by now. And I'm like, I think. I think these kids are talking about hell, right? And there's like, and which side are you? And then they, they keep doing it. And it just, it, every verse, it ramps up in intensity. And in fact, after the first um, experience, we're walking out and someone took caught me and they're like, I watched that movie to do, it's a little creepy. Yes, <laughs> it is. But like, that's where we get our image from, that, that Jesus is heaven's bouncer, right? He's got the gate, and he'll open it to you, or he'll close it to you, and which side are you going to be on when that day comes? Because we're told, growing up from a very like, little, little age and, and getting our cues, that that day, when you go to meet God, when, when you die, and when you're at the pearly gate, and yes, Saint Peter is there, and you meet him, that that day is a, is a fearful an anxiety-ridden day. Because after all, didn't Jesus just say in John 10 that he is the gate? Well, today we're going to push back a little on that, especially because the very next line that he says is a line included in here, not to create fear, not to create anxiety, but actually to comfort us, actually to do just the opposite of probably what all of this had done for you in your childhood to give you this misunderstanding of God as the gate in the first place. So let's listen to the next line. It comes to us in verse 10, where he says, listen, I am the gate because, because the thief comes only to, and this is a nastiness, the thief comes only to steal, to kill, and destroy. Some pretty nasty stuff. Something you have to know about sheep, not because I know, I have no idea. I've like seen one once at the zoo sometime, but we've got a research assistant who looks into this stuff, so blame him if it goes sideways, if you fact check me later. But one of the things that, that I learned about sheep this week is that they have almost no defense mechanisms. They're slow, they're loud, and they're soft. Like, how do these things survive? I've got no idea except they're useful and tasty, so I get why people would raise them. 
Okay, no diff- you don't see these things in a fight. You don't see them sparring or they sharp teeth or claws or they run, but like not too fast. They, they don't have any of that, which makes them perfect for stealing because they're slow, loud, and soft. You just pick one up and walk away or cart it off somewhere at night. It's pretty easy, right? And so stealing sheep was a pretty common thing back in the day. It was easy. So people had to pen these things up not to, not to, pro, not to um, keep them from experiencing the, the joy of the wilderness. Oh, no, no. They would pen them up at night simply to protect them. And that's my first point. There'll be three, because every sermon has three. But my first point is that, is that this is said not to like rob somebody of joy, but to protect them. There's this image, this picture uh, from C.S. Lewis that I think is just, it's so helpful because uh, uh, C.S. Lewis paints the picture, and I'll paraphrase, about these kids playing at the, top of a, at the top of a hill, right? And they got a ball, and they're kicking it back and forth, and it's a pretty cool scene. Except you find out a little bit later that the hill actually has this steep drop-off off the side. It's actually not so much a hill, but it's a cliff that the kids are playing up on. And so now, if you've watched after little kids or if you, you have little kids at home, there's like this anxiety that starts to well up inside of you as you imagine these kids playing ball on the, out, on the next to a cliff. And you know just exactly how dangerous that is because if the ball goes over, the kids are going to chase it. And it's just like this terrifying picture. And then C.S. Lewis paints the picture. He fills out a little bit more and says, okay, say you've got these kids playing on a hill and there's a cliff nearby. And somebody comes in and, he, and they put like this, this fence, right, like along the cliff, along the hill in front of the drop-off. And the, and the fence is there, so if the ball runs over, it runs into the fence before it falls off the cliff. If the kids run over, the kids run into the fence before they, they, before they go over, over the cliff. The wall is there not to rob them of their joy. The wall is there not to keep them from experiencing something that, that they should have the right to experience. The fence is there to protect them from all of the dangers that lurk on the other side that cliff, because that cliff is there, and it will kill, and it will destroy, and it will steal them of their joy. You get what I'm saying? Some of you are wearing wedding bands right now, and if you are, I just, I just encourage you right now to like reach over and just to grab it. I've got mine tattooed on. I, I don't want to forget. I lose things a lot. So I just reach over and just kind of like imagine, just, just touch it. And some of you who are wearing one of those or, or will be wearing one of those, just imagine for a minute. Just, just imagine that you're wearing one of these and you're touching it because, because it isn't there to steal you of your joy. It isn't there to kill or to destroy any part of you. It is there to protect you. It is there to make sure and to ensure that you're experiencing the most that human relationships can possibly have you experience. It is there not to harm you, steal you, kill you, or destroy you in any way, but some of you have been wearing these things for decades because you know the supreme joy that that fence provides you in your intimacy with one other human being on this planet, it is there to protect you. Some of you, some of you when you were kids, listen, you and your parents were like oil and water. 
You just did not get along. And they had rules, and they had guidelines, and you broke those rules, and then your rules got tighter and tighter, and then you fought back more and more, and it was just constant. This, it was just fighting back and forth all the time. And, and I think maybe you need to hear from somebody who isn't a parent, who has kids, and is say, I don't know what I'm doing all the time. <laughs> Very few. But you know what? The rules are there. Not to steal your joy, not to kill or destroy any part of your joy in life, but to safeguard it, to to protect it, to ensure that you are getting the absolute most out of life that is humanly possible. I just, your idea of God, just set on the side and just listen to Jesus speak into your life and just say, I am here not to steal your joy, Not to kill or destroy any part of you, but I am here to protect you. And I have have rules about what to do and what not to do. And you might love those rules when they make sense to you. You might loathe those rules when they don't make sense to you. But listen, you got to understand that they're here, that I am here. Not to steal your joy, kill, or destroy any part of you. I am here to guide you. I am here to watch over you. I am here to protect you so that you have life. And as we're going to see in the next line, and have life to the, help me out, full. Have life to the fullest measure possible. That's what Jesus came here for. So if you have this idea that, you, you know what, Jesus as a gate, that's going to be helpful someday in the future, right? Like presumably when you die and then when you go outside of heaven and you meet St. Peter and Jesus or something outside the pearly gates, like that's when the fullest, the full life is like on the other side of that gate in eternity. Get this though, second point, get this though. For Jesus, eternity doesn't start after you die on the other side of heaven. In fact, The whole point of Jesus coming here was for him to leave heaven, just to like leave the cloud and the harp somewhere and to come here and to teach us about heaven. In fact, Jesus made it his livelihood. Jesus made it his point to come here and to teach us and to like point out and say, there, there's heaven, like, like a slice of kingdom of God. I just saw it over there. When Jesus sees a, a, a poor widow and she drops two, two pennies into a bucket as she gives away her, her last two sins, Jesus calls the disciples and says, there, right there, I just saw heaven. I just saw heaven right there. When, when Jesus sees one person who has two coats and another person who has none coats, that's a word, and then... And then Jesus looks over at the guy who has two coats and give one away to the person who doesn't have any. And Jesus says, right there, right, did you see it? Did you see, did you see a tiny slice of heaven right there as he gave away the coat? I have an extraordinarily privileged position here at church. Not simply because I get to, on a weekly basis, stand on the stage and to tell you about this amazing man named Jesus. Not only because of that, but by what happens throughout the week. As I get to watch people have these experiences of supreme joy and of supreme grace and and, and people who who thought of themselves as completely and utterly unlovable and and then come to this experience where, where, where many of you come and say, I cannot believe that God would love me to death and back. And I look at it and I go, there, right there. It's a king. 
That's heaven, a small slice of it. And Jesus, by his grace, is growing that more and more all the time. I love it. The point that I'm trying to make is that, is that we tend to think that heaven is this far off place that starts sometime after we die. But the way that Jesus talked about heaven, the way that Jesus talked about the kingdom of God, it isn't some faraway place. It's that when you commit your life to Jesus, when you start on this journey, heaven doesn't start then and there. Heaven starts now. Eternity starts now. And that is the incredible part about this journey and the joy that comes with it. That this gate that Jesus talked about likening himself to, this is an open invitation to come on in, to experience this love, to experience this joy. Listen, the gate is there to protect us. The gate is there as a symbol of heaven starting now. And the gate is also there as an extreme sense of comfort. And we don't always think about it that way because we assume that it's like happening far away. It's happening somewhere in, out there. But in the analogy, like it that he makes, like it or hate it, where are the sheep? And the sheep go out and then they come back. And then the next day they go out and then, and then later that night they come back again. This is, a, this is a familiar rhythm that they have. Which starts to bump up against our idea that, oh man, he's the gate and it's this eternal decision that's being made and it's outside of heaven and it's anxiety ridden and it's fear ridden. And, and so, no, 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 for Jesus, who says, listen, I'm the gate and the, the gate, the gate for the sheep is, is anything but fear, fearsome or anxiety ridden. No, no, no. I mean, some of you are like heading off on spring break or just coming back and it's like this 20-hour road trip maybe, you know, around and involved in this and you're tired and you're hangry and they're with people who are the same and it's just an exhausting journey. But, but as soon as you, you turn that corner and you come onto your street and you can see your house or your apartment or your building and you turn around and you see, like, and you see the front door of, those, of that place. The, the emotion that wells up is not fear. It is not anxiety. And when you're on a journey in a far off, dry, rocky, arid place and you come back, the emotion that is sensed is relief. You're home, finally. And that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, it's, it's even more than that. Because the way that they built homes back then, the way we think of, of, of shepherding, you know, today, like there's a sprawling factory farm with tens of thousands of, of sheep on it. And Jesus says, no, no, that's not how it worked then. That's not the picture that he's painting. When Jesus uses the image, you think of a, you know, of a, of a shepherd not having tens of thousands of sheep, but like tens of sheep or, or dozens of sheep. In fact, they, they built sheep pens often with the home exactly next to it because the side wall of their home would, would provide one wall, one of the four walls of the sheep pen. In fact, a lot of the times, families would, would all band together, extended families or, or maybe close neighbors, and they would band together. And, and one would build one here on the left, and then another one would build one behind, and then another one would build one on the right. And so you'd have like these, these three of four walls. Basically, the sheep pen at that point is just gate because the, the homes provide the rest, the rest of the pen. 
I, ju- I just want you to see that. For a sheep coming back to the pen, I mean, walking through that gate, there's a sense in which it is figuratively and literally coming home. And the reason why the shepherds could all band together and pour all their sheep into the same pen is, is even though they had almost no defense mechanism, they had one remarkable trait. Sheep have a remarkable ability to memorize the frequency of each person's individual voice. And so the shepherds figured this out quickly enough and it made their job much, much easier. And in fact, there's historical accounts of how shepherds would give each sheep like a nickname and so they could call it over and it would, it would come like a pet. And so you have all these sheep of different, belonging to different people in the same pen and so in the morning, when it was grazing time, it was feeding time, the shepherds would go out and they'd each call their sheep, presumably by name, and then the sheep would come out of the gate, out of the pen, and in each go find that sheep's own shepherd and they'd go out and graze them individually wherever, wherever they're going that day. I want to invite someone, I want to invite you to just consider what it would mean for Jesus as the good shepherd, to call your name. To call you by name and to say you, wherever you are. Maybe you've been, maybe you've been out lost in a rocky terrain under the hot, scorching desert sun. Maybe life has taken you to some very regrettable and very difficult places on the journey. And right now, Jesus is standing by the gate as the shepherd and he's saying, you, by name, come home. It's time to come home. And maybe you're here for the first time or for the first time in a long time. And you're going, these are not my people. This, I'm not a church person. I'm here because they promised me lunch afterwards, right? I'm not that person. I, I am a guest at best, probably an intruder here. And Jesus is saying, you are an invited guest, You are not an intruder. You are not a thief. You are welcome in this place. This, for you, is home. And you're safe here. And you can rest easy here. We'll show you and we'll demonstrate to you when the time comes that you can even put your guard down here. Because Jesus is here. And he cares so deeply, so deeply for you that he even knows your name. And Jesus runs with that illustration. He runs with this analogy so much that he even doubles down on it. He goes, and not only am I like the gate of a sheep pen, but he goes, actually, I'm also the shepherd. He says in verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd Uh, The good shepherd lays lays down his life for the sheep. This is an absurd statement. Reading about this uh, earlier this week, I found out um, shepherds, we think of shepherds today like in the Bible times, it's like, oh, it's cute and cuddly, handsome shepherd guy, right? Who like picks up the sheep and like walks home with it. He's just like this super nice, safe guy. Shepherds in the first century were anything but. Uh, who read these historical accounts of shepherds. And one commentator said, shepherds were some of the most vulgar and lowest class kind of workers in Jesus' day. I'm not going to try 
to liken that to a, to a profession here today because that's offensive. Um, but I will share some of my experience because <laughs> I wasn't always a pastor. One of, the jobs that, one of the jobs that I had was as a deer processor, right? Yeah. So uh, those of you who are hunters, when you shoot something and you don't want to deal with that, that was my job. And I understand why you didn't want to deal with that. I have some stories, but that's for another time. So what we'd do, we'd get a whole pile of them, like, right, and we'd assembly line, right? And we'd all have a job to do, and every day we'd, like, switch, do a different job because you got to mix it up somehow. And I'm just, I'm, like, letting you know that this isn't exactly the, the fertile soil that faith grows in on an hour-by-hour hour basis, but it did pay well. Another job that I had was a restaurant job as a server slash bartender in a failing steakhouse. I know what you're thinking. That sounds like church itself. It wasn't, right? It was a vulgar place to work. And I just kept telling myself, the light shines brightest in the dark, right? And now I'm here. But it's just you know, kind of career trajectory. Uh, listen. These are not like the, the most, like I said, fertile places for faith to grow. I, I would have been shocked. I would be shocked for Jesus to like sit me down, right, as a religious leader, and, he, and sit me down and to say, here's the deal, Dirk. I, I am the good deer processor. <laughs> like, what? That is, what? Now I'm just confused, Right? But that's exactly what Jesus does. Like, I am the good shepherd. Jesus, it's absurd to think that way. And I think that's actually the point. I got, I got permission to share this story ahead of time. Um, but uh, occasionally we do baptisms here, and, and we, ba we baptize babies as well as adults, and so I sit down with the parents, and uh, when, when they're new to encounter, maybe they just, just had a, their first baby, and, and we sit in my office, and we just share stories, right, of where we've seen God move in our lives, and, and it's just an awesome, encouraging time. And then I, I sit down, and I ask them these, these four questions that I ask on stage, and I say, you know, I invite you to think about these, to consider these, and if you have any questions about the questions. And, and there, the first question is about, do you believe that, you know, your child is, is in need of the grace that Jesus offers? Do you believe, and the third one is about the Bible as a plan of salvation? Do you believe, or do you promise to do everything you can as parents that your child, your baby grows up, always knowing that she or he is included in God's loving and gracious family? The second question I ask, though, I skipped that one. The second question I asked is, do you believe that Jesus being God, came here and died and rose from the dead, laid his life down in order to conquer our two chief fears, our sin and our death. And I was sitting down with one, with one couple a while back and the guy looks at me and says, now that's where you lost me. Now at the time, I'm like, Jesus? Like that's pretty central to us around here. But, but he goes, let me, let, me, let me tell you, you know, and I, but I've come to find out about I'm a very logical, systematic person who likes the I's dotted and the T's crossed, like everything lined up. And he goes, the idea, Dirk, the idea of the God of the universe, who's presumably far away doing very important things, like, like keeping the planets in orbit, like the idea of that God coming to this blue marble 
And being born as a Middle Eastern Jewish person a couple thousand years ago, Dirk, that is absurd to me. That, that God would like make a painting and then step into it. And not only that, but that that painting would eventually, would eventually reject him and throw him out of it and kill him. They didn't want him. And knowing that that was a plan all along, that is absurd. And like I said, I usually do. I let him, like, get it all out. What else doesn't make sense? And he just, he went on and on and talks about how, how you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Life doesn't work that way. Like, God is up here and we're down here. God is this and we are not. Like, we should, we should scratch and claw every inch to make our way to him. That's how it should work. I said, exactly right. That is how it should work. And most of life, and I'll be honest, every other world religion works that way. You scratch and you claw to make your way to God. And the absurdity of the good shepherd who lays down his life is that, is that the God of the Bible, the God of our faith, the God of Christianity, isn't content to sit high off and away somewhere, but that that God absurdly steps off from his throne in heaven and comes here to be with us. And it doesn't make any sense. And so the idea of God saying something even more absurd, like, like, I am a good shepherd, just simply goes to show the absurd length that he would go to meet us at our very, very bottom and to say, there, I will dwell with you. There, I will be your God and you will be my people. There, I will protect you. There, I will guide you. There, I will start your joyful eternity now. It doesn't make any sense. But that's who he is. And right now, right now there's probably a few of you who are who are a hundred miles away from home. And life is rocky and life is hard. And you can't imagine a God who would meet you at the dark places that you have gone and who maybe are right now. But the absurdity of this faith is that God has already been there walking alongside of you and says, you, by name, when you are ready, let's go home. I have a place for you. I have a place for you in eternity. But when you walk with me as your good shepherd, eternity starts now. Wherever you are on this journey, just imagine your Lord, your good shepherd, calling you by name. And whether this is your first time at Encounter Church, whether it's your first time in a long time, or whether you have been a regular here since the very, very beginning, Jesus has one clear and compelling message for each one of you by name, and he says, welcome home. you stand up and let's pray to the God who welcomes us so graciously into his presence. Dear gracious God, we, we thank you for being our good shepherd. 
God, as absurd as that sounds, you died, you were resurrected from the dead, and you ascended to heaven, and currently you are seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And yet you still know our names. And yet you still protect us. And yet you still start our eternities now. And yet you are the one with us on the journey, calling us close by name and saying, welcome home. We don't always understand this and we definitely don't always get it right. But God, you are there for us to pick us up each step of the way. God, we trust in your unfailing name. God, we have you as our good shepherd and nothing in this world can shake our core because we declare that we trust your unfailing nature, God. And today we simply accept you, accept your invitation with this our thank you. Amen.